Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. It's raining outside. If you don't know, uh, let's hope you're all under your doona. Now, uh, today I uh, went off to listen to an event given by the, run by the Chifley Research Centre and per capita last week. It was uh, a talk by a fellow called Thomas Frank. He is an American journalist and book writer. One of his books, which is uh, uh, considered a seminal work called What's Wrong with Kansas?, and his new book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, give you a sense of uh, what his topic is. His topic is around how the uh, governments in America have uh, failed workers. And uh, he was brought out to Australia to be a keynote speaker for the Labor Party National Conference, which was postponed because of the... uh, by-elections that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. Now, Labor came out victorious victorious in those uh, by-elections and despite Turnbull, the Prime Minister's uh, pre-selection statement that this was going to be a vote for who should be Prime Minister, he has uh, since uh, scurried off and uh, not repeated those words. But uh, anyway, Thomas Franks is uh, then did has done a, a whistle stop tour along the east coast, speaking at uh, various centres, and he came and spoke in Melbourne last week at the uh, trades hall, and the panel that was uh, held afterwards included Wayne Swan, who is the new national president for the Labor Party, and he was. Uh, joined by Dennis Glover, who's a research fellow for the Chifley Research uh, Centre, but also a journalist of his uh, and writer as well. He has written a book called um, Economy Isn't a Society, (laughs) which also gives you a tenor of his viewpoints and where he's coming from. So what I thought I'd do is, first off, take you to the speech that was given and then give you some uh, tidbits from the actual discussion because uh, it's quite interesting to find out what uh, Wayne Swan has got to say about uh, what he believes uh, is required for a fairer Australia. So let's start off with Thomas Frank. Howdy, folks. How you all doing? It's a beautiful day here in 
Melbourne, Australia. Uh, can y'all hear me? Is this is this working? Okay, I can't. I can't tell. <laughs> so I should explain. I feel like I should explain Rendezvous with Oblivion. It comes from a famous speech by Franklin Roosevelt. Well, he didn't say. What he said was, you know, it was one of those great, uh, inspiring moments of his um, in 1936. The country was in deep in the Great Depression, but we were on our way out of it. And he said, this generation has a rendezvous with destiny. And that was sort of the, that was the slogan as we went through World War II. And it just feels to me like we had the chance for that kind of leader and that kind of uh, situation of our, for our generation. And uh, we don't have that anymore. We blew it. We lost it. <clears throat> Okay, that's really negative, sorry. Let me, um, let me say something nice. So I'm from Kansas. This is the place that invented populism. Populism was a good thing back in those days when they invented it. And today we, we rode on an airplane from Brisbane down to Melbourne and it looked like a lot like Kansas down there on the ground. And there's so much about your country that reminds me of home, you know, uh, the vast open spaces, the incredible natural wealth the uh, prosperous middle-class society, you know. Uh, in both of our countries, democracy is more than just a formal system of government, it's a way of life. And, you know, the people of our countries instinctively mistrust aristocracy and pretense of all kinds. But what I want to talk about tonight is how we're different. How the United States has gone down a road that I implore you not to follow. So I started out in journalism at the very tail end of the Ronald Reagan presidency. And at the time, I felt that the rise of the conservative movement in the US, in the UK, all over the world, that this was the most consequential development of my lifetime. And understanding conservatism is where I decided to focus my energy. Now, what what really came to fascinate me as I looked into conservatism was the paradox of the thing. Think about it this way. Our Republican Party back in the United States over the years managed to successfully invert their historical brand image as the party of the highborn. And they remade themselves uh, in this era that I'm talking about. They remade themselves as plain talking pals of the common people who had so spurned them back in the Great Depression in the days of Franklin Roosevelt. Now, of course, the payload of republicanism was the same as it had always been. This never changes, never changed, and it never will. And just look at what conservatism proceeded to do to my fellow Americans once they welcomed it into their lives. What have its achievements been? Well, there's tax cuts, of course, we all know about that. They've pretty much destroyed the power of the labor movement in America. They've deregulated so much that you now have disastrous financial crises brought on by fraudulent behavior in industries that the rest of the world, in their innocence and their folly, think we still police. But we don't, folks. The days when our government got tough with monopolies or investment banks are over. <clears throat> now there are hundreds of objective statistical ways of describing how my country has changed and I chose, I'm going to go through just a few of them, some of the more 
um, outrageous examples. Of course, houses are much bigger today. In they get bigger every year. The square footage of the average American house gets, you know, they're enormous now. Uh, university is massively more expensive today than it was in the 1980s. The um, university where I went to graduate school back then now costs $70,000 a year to attend. Four years of that is close to $300,000. That's American money, folks. And as I travel the country, I'm forever running into kids fresh out of college who are 50, 60, 70, $100,000 in debt. And they're starting out life that way with the equivalent of a mortgage and no home to show for it. And by the way, also thanks to conservatism, that debt, uh, student loan debt is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. It is fastened to you for life. Anyhow, union density in America is way down. Members of Congress routinely quit to become lobbyists. The price of a certain prescription pill recently went from $13 to $750. No good reason for that. They just they saw that they had the chance to do it, and they did it. The Dow Jones Industrial Average these days, folks, is over 25000 Another statistical way of looking at it. From the middle of the 1930s up until 1980, the lower 90% of the population in my country, a group that we might call the American people, they took home 70% of the growth in my country's income. And that's as it should be. That is the middle class society that I was born into. If you look at the same numbers beginning in 1997 and running up to the present day, so from the middle of the great dot-com bubble up until today, you'll find that this same group, the American people, pocketed none of my country's income growth at all. Their share in these great good times was zero. The upper 10% of the population, by which I mean the country's financiers, managers, and professionals, they ate the whole thing. Back in 1980, according to an American labor group, CEOs in my country made about 40 times as much as their average blue-collar line worker. Today, it's 361 times. One amazing number I came across just the other day as I was get, you know, boarding my uh, airplane to come here is that Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, the richest man in the world, earns as much in nine seconds as his average employee does in a year. One particularly fortunate American family has as much wealth as does 40% of the country's population put together. The main accomplishment of the six high-achieving individuals who make up this clan, the main, their main accomplishment was to inherit shares in Walmart, the retailer that has sucked the life out of thousands of towns in the part of the country that I come from. Truly, folks, the rich people of these days make the rich people of my childhood look like Soviets, <laughs> like peasants, you know? All right. Everything I just described, these are, these are staggering changes, you know. Just imagine living in a country that has changed like that. But they are even more staggering still when you think about the politics of it all. Take the conservative movement's signature economic ideas, okay? 
privatize everything, let Wall Street run the economy, get tough with workers, and let wages fall where they may. Those are their great ideas, right? Well, listen, folks, with a few exceptions here and there, these ideas have never enjoyed public approval. These are not the kind of things for which people rally in the streets by the millions, you know? Were we to stage every American election as a referendum on this economic philosophy, and were our two parties to take forthright positions on either side of these matters, you know, privatizing, financialization, low wages, and so on, every election would be a wipeout. Every election would just be, you know, the Republicans would lose every single time. Obviously, that's not what happens. That is not how things have worked out. What happened is that the conservatives in my country took a deeply unpopular political agenda and made it into the elite consensus wisdom, not only of America, but of the entire world. That is the story of our time, folks. How the hell did they do it? Well, that's what I've spent my life trying to understand. And what I keep coming back to in, I mean, in the broadest terms is this. We're living in an, an age of towering discontent. Everybody is angry in the United States, as they, you know, as you can understand, right? After the statistics I read to you, people are furious everywhere you go. And the Republicans are comfortable with their fury. They are comfortable with discontent. They are endlessly aggrieved. You watch their conventions sometime or their speeches. They are always furious, shaking their fists at the heavens, you know, always. So modern American conservatives don't speak to us in the manner of the capitalists of the 19th century, you know, invoking the divine right of money, like John D. Rockefeller, or demanding that the lowly learn their place in the great chain of being. They don't do that. What they do is the exact opposite. They imagine themselves as enemies of the elite, as the voice of the unfairly persecuted, as a righteous protest of the people on history's receiving end. They're sitting right there with you on the couch in front of the TV as you watch some Hollywood star insult your values and mock your way of life. One of the conservative leaders that I studied uh, back in the 1970s had a, had a slow, I didn't study him in the 70s, he was active in the 70s, and he had a slogan. And this is an amazing slogan when you think about it. Um, his slogan was, organize discontent. Do you guys know what the IWW was? <laughs> That's basically, you know, like what they used to say. And here's this leader of the conservative movement has swiped that slogan, and that's what he does. He, or, he organized discontent. That is what they do. And they deliberately mimic the historical left. That is what the Tea Party movement was, folks. It was a fake, hard times protest movement. They, they saw, look, we're, we're entering, it's another 1929, it's another, it looks like another Great Depression on the way, let's gin up a protest movement, you know, and that's what they did. Best example of all is, of course, Donald Trump's presidential campaign in 2016, where he deliberately tried to make it seem as though he was leading an old-style left-wing protest. His final TV commercial for example, it, it, they call it his closing statement. It, they ran it in the final weeks of the campaign. And it's Trump giving a speech to a crowd of supporters in an, uh, an aircraft hangar somewhere. And um, 
he, in, the, in, the, in the ad, in the speech, he attacks what he calls the political establishment, which he defines like this. Now listen to this, folks. This is Trump. These are Trump's words. It's a global power structure that is responsible for the economic decisions that have robbed our working class. And by the way, Trump is almost unique in American politics in that he uses that phrase, the working class. The Democrats won't touch it. But they've, they've robbed our working class, they've stripped our economy of its wealth and put that money into the pockets of a handful of large corporations and political entities. You know how he says, entities. <laughs> the only thing that he, he get, listen, this is Trump speaking here, it's amazing. The only thing that can stop this corrupt machine is you. The only force strong enough to save our country is us. The only people brave enough to vote out this corrupt establishment is you, the American people. And you can watch this commercial on YouTube. It's, you know, right there, archived for all time. And you just can't believe it's Trump saying these things. It actually sounds kind of good. It sounds like something, something that I might say in different circumstances. It sounds idealistic if you don't know any better, right? Trump versus the global power structure that has robbed working people. Until, of course, he gets in office, secures another gigantic tax cut, deregulates the banks again, does these unbelievable favors for large corporations, you know, rolling back environmental protections, all the stuff that he's doing. By the way, this is not just Trump. Lots of conservatives love to, they, they, they all love to do this about, they love to talk about the betrayed working class. It's incredibly cynical, and sometimes it can be incredibly perverse. Do you know what the big branch mine disaster was? It was a coal mine accident in America about uh, 10 years ago where 29 miners died in West Virginia. Anyhow, the CEO of that company, the company that owned that mine, and that CEO, by the way, later went to prison for his role in violating uh, safety rules. But before all that happened, he threw a great big Labor Day rally in 2009, and in the, at that rally he took to the stage and he said he was there to defend American labor because no one else will. Like Trump, the CEO said he was standing tall against our government leaders, who are with their safety and environmental meddling, American workers' worst nightmare. This is the CEO of Upper Big Branch Mine, pretending to care about workers. And folks, they have been talking like this for decades, and they have been winning. How do they get away with this stuff? Well, to answer that, we have to shift our focus to the other party in the American system, the Democratic Party, because these are the guys who are charged with keeping the Republicans in check and making sure that they pay for it when they cause a financial crisis or tell working people that they're on their side or something like that. It's the Democrats that are supposed to hold them accountable. That's the nature of a two-party system. But guess what? Democratic Party isn't particularly interested in the job that I just described. Take the most glaring example in recent history, President Obama's response to the financial crisis. Now, 10 years ago, we're going to be having a lot of 10-year uh, memorial uh, observations of the financial crisis here in a couple of months. And try to remember what it was like in 2008. There's this global financial panic underway. And here comes Barack Obama, so intelligent, such an amazing orator. Uh, he seemed to me, I don't know about you, but he seemed to me like the perfect man for the moment. 
I looked at him and I thought, that is the Franklin Roosevelt of my generation. And he was elected in a massive wave of hope and enthusiasm. And he had the country at his back. He had the whole world at his back. And he proceeded to continue the bailout policies of George W. Bush essentially unchanged. No big banks ever got put into receivership. No bailouts ever got unwound. No elite bankers ever got prosecuted for what was the most incredibly obvious wave of financial fraud that I have ever seen or heard of. Liars' loans, they called them. Nobody went to jail for that. And none of them even got fired. I mean, Obama had the perfect, he had the power to, you know, had seats on their boards because of the bailout. He could have done whatever he wanted. But he refused to change course when every sign was telling him that it was time to turn, when it would have been good for the country to turn. I mean, economically healthy to dial back Wall Street's power over the economy, when it was fully within his power to turn, when it would have been overwhelmingly popular to turn. I mean, he'd still be president today. We would have amended the Constitution and given him a third turn if he had, if he had done this. And when, lastly, the country fully expected him to turn. That's why we thought we had elected him. Everybody thought this is what was coming. The Wall Street bankers themselves thought it. There's this moment early in his presidency where he called the Wall Street bankers down from New York. And they came down, you know, to the White House and went into a meeting with the new president. And they go into that meeting and they are absolutely, they're ashen-faced because they know what's going to happen to them. That the new Franklin D. Roosevelt is going to take them to the woodshed. <laughs> And they come out a little while later, all smiles. Nothing changed, they say. Instead, we foamed the runways for them. In the immortal phrase of Treasury Secretary Geithner, we foamed the runways for the big banks. Why didn't Obama take the opportunity to blast Republican policies and shore up the middle class society when this possibility was right in front of him. When he was holding four aces, how did he lose? How did it happen? Okay, I have to stop there. And he did, and uh, which is a very compelling moment. But uh, they went on to questions, and later on there was some answers. Uh, the voices you're going to hear are Thomas Frank in Answers to Questions and uh, Wayne Swan and Dennis Glover. So let's move on because it was a gripping performance. When in 2016, when, when, the, uh, when the campaign was, was going, uh, and Trump was well behind in the opinion polls, you'll recall. I mean, there was, it was not clear to me that he was going to win until right up towards the very end. But I would always say, you know, this man has, um, he's a fool and he's a terrible politician. And, you know, you look at, he goes down the list of American ethnic groups insulting, you know, a little insult for each one. It's like, you don't run for president by doing that. That's, that is, you know, I thought that was the, the, the dumbest thing I'd ever seen a politician do. And, but his, his idea of mixing populism with nationalism, that's, you know, you can obviously see that that is a powerful thing. And Democrats, of course, their strategy in 2016 was let this guy sink himself. He's such a moron and he's, you know, he's so foul-mouthed and he's, you know, uh, he, he's so bizarre and awful that we don't really have to try, you know? They were completely complacent about it. And what I would say at the time to try to wake them up is that imagine Trumpism in the hands of somebody that's a real politician. 
like a Ted Cruz or a Marco Rubio, uh, or even a Jeb Bush. Okay, I know that's you, you know low energy Jeb Bush. <laughs> that's a little hard to imagine. But imagine Trumpism in the hands of someone who who knows that you're not that you. It's a bad idea to insult every ethnic group in America. You don't want to make fun of 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 people who've died in the Iraq War, which he did. Actually, he went after the the, the kids' parents. You know, he made fun of handicapped people. These are incredible blunders. Imagine a politician with Trump's politics who doesn't do that. And so what I was saying is, this is serious stuff, folks. You've got to look out. And, uh, but now he, he won anyways. <clears throat> and I'm here to tell you it's never going away. Trump won these prizes that the Republican Party has wanted for decades. He won Ohio, he won Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Iowa and Wisconsin, which is hard for someone of my generation to believe, Wisconsin is the home of radicalism in America. This is one of the most left-wing states, well, just about the most left-wing state, Trump won it. They're never walking away from a strategy that delivers that kind of success. And right now, uh, the Democratic strategy, of course, the, 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 the way the Democrats are, are you know, seeking to stop Trump. Well, there, there is no strategy. The strategy is, again, the public will turn against this guy, and when he does, we'll be there to harvest the votes. We don't have to do anything differently, they say. In fact, every idea, every uh, uh, you know, demographic trend, everything that the Democrats think about and fantasize about always has one implication, that is that they don't have to do anything differently. They will believe anything, they will grasp at any straw as long as it doesn't require them to do anything differently. And so their great idea right now is, let Trump sink himself and then we'll get in. And that's it. And I'm telling you, Trumpism is here to stay. It is not going away anytime soon. And if they don't think of a way, this is where we, we, we're, we're heading straight into the darkness here. I'm so sorry. But if they don't think of a way to counteract this, and I mean seriously, you know, checkmate it in a real way, this is going to go and go and go and go. Essentially, uh, parties of the, of the left, or the center left, have been disappearing in the blink of an eye right across the developed world over the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, and there is no better example of uh, their weakness than the Democrats in the United States, who have had some electoral success, uh, but have failed at the ultimate hurdle, where they've been beaten by the ultimate uh, right-wing populist. Uh, Populism in this country, uh, the use of the word, is a reference to right-wing populism. There's nothing wrong with pure populism. There's nothing wrong with having policies that are popular. There's certainly nothing wrong with policies that redistribute wealth uh, in a community fairly. They're popular policies and can be described as populist. But here, you know, our populist version of, of Trump and the Tea Party has actually become the Liberal Party of Australia. And the more extreme version of it, of course, uh, is Pauline Hanson. But there's a very big difference in political outcomes in this country, say, compared to the United States. The difference between us having Pauline Hanson or one or two senators in the Senate and the United States having Donald Trump uh, is pretty simple. In the United States, they've had 30 years of real wage reductions. And here, uh, for all of that time, bar the last five years, we've had 30 years of real wage increases. So. This right-wing populism uh, has been driven by the suppression of wages and living standards of working people right across the developed world. Uh, and uh, we have largely been uh, spared that. 
uh, but the danger that we face uh, and the trap that the Democrats in the United States have fallen into and many other social democratic parties across Europe have fallen into is a very simple one. That when parties of the uh, left run weak and insipid uh, uh, economic agendas, they get run over by right-wing populists using the populism, using, using division, using the politics of race, using the politics of gender to camouflage what is essentially a wealth concentration agenda, which is what they have done so successfully uh, in the United States. So they go out to uh, sow discord and division all as a smokescreen uh, for a lack of concentration on the fact that they're really on about redistributing wealth and income upwards in a society. Uh, and if centre-left parties or left parties internationally don't have a strong, vibrant economic alternative based on the notion that they stand and fight for economic equality, they tend to uh, fall victim uh, to the politics of division and wedge politics, particularly using the politics of race effectively as they are, not just in the United States for historical reasons, but now increasingly right across Europe. Dennis. Yeah, I think um, that, you know, there are two elements of populism, aren't there? There's an economic platform that's populist and redistributive um, to, to working people, but there's also the language of populism is such an incredible, incredibly strong part of it. And Trump, I think, is the great example of that. Here's somebody who is able to communicate directly with people in language that they understand. Whereas I think part of the problem here, including on the left, is the way we tend to speak about economic issues. You know, we've turned ourselves over many generations going back to the 80s. Remember how um, Keating used to say every galar and pet shop galar is talking about economics? We've turned ourselves in some ways into economic speakers rather than populists or politicians or Democrats. And so, you know, even when we talk about good things, um, redistribution, we, we, we invent economic um, terminology for them, uh, the precariat, pre-distribution. Well, even inequality. Yeah. Inequality yeah. is such a weak word when you're thinking yeah. about the, what it describes. Yeah. Social um, inclusion. We invent all these things which are good policies, but they're not, they're not um, spoken in the language of the direct language of ordinary people. And so I think we've lost, in, in our communication, we've lost our, our ability to connect with the people who, whose lives are threatened by um, the concentration of wealth at the top, as we've seen in America. And I think if, you know, if I was giving advice to the Democrats in the States, God forbid, I'd say find, a, find someone who can speak directly to the people. I mean, do the Democrats need another highfalutin liberal lawyer um, or do they need someone who has a direct appeal? And, you know, even on the weekend you saw, I think we're getting there in Australia. I think the Labor Party's made some advances. I know that, I know that Wayne's been pushing hard in the party for us to speak in this, more, this clearer language for a while. And those banners, you know, on Saturday night, on the by-election, you know, um, money, money for Medicare, not for bankers. Well, there you go. That's how you do it. Yes, yeah. yeah. Incred incredibly straightforward. So I mentioned earlier that I'm from Kansas. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, farm, it's a farm area, and, um, by and large. And um, it has uh, the distinction of having pioneered a number of things in American life. And one of those things was populism. And this was a, a political movement in the 1890s. It was spelled with an uppercase P. And it was a radical left-wing movement. It was at the same time that people were forming labor parties all over the world. You, you, your party mm. was formed at about yeah. that same time. 
And uh, populism was, would have been the American version of that, only it, it didn't last very long. It got swallowed up by the Democrats after, after a couple of years. But it was uh, it, mainly farmers. They tried to be a uh, party of urban workers too, but that didn't really, they didn't really catch on there. But um, their demands were, and they were very explicit about their demands, and it was all very familiar economic stuff that wouldn't surprise you at all. Their language was uh, Jeffersonian, you know, democratic speak updated for the 19th century. So the idea of the people versus the, the elite was what it was all about. The essence of populism, the most important fact is that it's a language of class, it's a language of class grievance, and it identifies an elite who are to blame for your problems. Now, once you define it like that, you can see how it can be, uh, this language can be taken and abused by almost anyone selling any kind of proposition as long as they seem to be on your side and angry at, at, at an elite of some kind. Um, and there are many, many, many different populisms, but it's right-wing populism that has always fascinated me because it's so perverse. To be against the elite while you're you know, showering wealth on the upper 1% and you know, Jeff Bezos is richer than any human being has ever been since like the days of Nero or something. What kind of populism is that? So I, I always use the term fake populism to describe it, but what that obviously implies is that real populism would defeat it. And I think that that's what you're trying here in Australia. Now the bad news is, and I'm absolutely convinced that, that addressing the concerns of ordinary people in a forthright way would be the, that's how you kill right-wing populism. There's no question in my mind that that's what would do it. Right now the Democratic Party, who again are the only ones standing between Trump and the rest of the world, <laughs> they have no interest in doing that. And I know this from uh, personal experience because I write about this all the time and their response to my articles is fury and outrage. Uh, you know, when I say that they have to develop a strategy for doing something about, you know, working class voters who are slowly but surely abandoning the Democrats for the Republicans. You know, specifically white working class voters, but it gets worse every year. And they've got to do something to stop this. And this infuriates them because that means uh, in their mind, rewarding people that voted for Trump. And what they want to do is scold those people. And this is the, so it's like uh, the, the Democrats have become a party of scolds. I call it a utopia of scolding. This is their <laughs> idea. They, they, they don't really mind the tax cuts, right? Because the, the leaders of the Democratic Party are very affluent people. The, the main people they serve, they're very well to do. They don't mind a lot of that stuff, but they do love the scolding. And to scold people, all you need is you know, a Twitter account or a Facebook account. You don't have to win elections. You can just put a bumper sticker on your car or wear an insulting t-shirt, you know? That's all it really takes. And so there, there's this, again, you, I keep coming back to this complacency. Anyhow, it's obvious to me that real populism is the, is the silver bullet that our times require. And it's just as obvious to me that we're not gonna we're not going to be allowed to, to fire that bullet. <laughs> so the Koch brothers, who are the big funders of the right wing in America, have lately been seen to start, they're starting to court the Democratic Party. And one of the reasons they're doing this is because Trump has been really mean to them. Just, just the other day, Trump tweeted something mean about the Koch brothers. <laughs> and so this is, this is actually not all that surprising to me, because the Koch brothers are... Uh, temperamentally and socially and in terms of taste, 
just like the leadership of the Democratic Party. They, like they, they uh, uh, funded an opera uh, hall in New York City. They funded a lot of art galleries, in addition to their funding extreme right-wing stuff. They're, they're, very, they're, they're people of very good taste, let's put it that way. But wait, there's a larger thing going on in America that I don't want to write about this, and I don't really even want to be on the record talking about it, but we might be looking at a kind of situation in America where the two parties are trading positions. Where, I mean, Trump and his, and his buddy Steve Bannon like to talk about making the Republicans into a party of working people, uh, a working, working person's party, which just seems crazy to me. I mean, the Republican Party, since it was started, is a party of big business. It has always been that. And for it to become a party of workers is just bizarre, but they're doing that while the Democratic Party is imagining itself as a party of, you know, Wall Street bankers. You know, like I said, this is Bill Clinton's great triumph. This is their triumphant moment when they reached out to Wall Street and Silicon Valley and Big Pharma and et cetera, and became the representative of those industries. And these two things are happening at the same time. So the Koch brothers are moving over, the, maybe moving over to the Democrats. And one other weird factor that is going on is that the Democrats have chosen as their candidates for uh, Congress all over America, uh, people who were formerly military and formerly CIA. This is the, the party of anti-war protest is now embracing the military and the intelligence community. Folks, everything is going upside down in the United States. It's the craziest time. And I have no idea where it's all gonna come out, but it, no, it would not surprise me if the Koch brothers decided to be you know, even-handed about it and support the Democrats also. Should they take the money? Oh, they, who, who knows, they will take the money. So Thomas, at the end of your speech, you left this with a sort of pregnant pause, the pregnant chat of political speaking. Why did Obama blink? Why didn't blink in Australia? I think we're better for it. When will progressives uh, need not to blink again in the coming future? What are the intervention points when we can't afford to blink? But first, why did My blink? opinion is that we couldn't afford to blink that time and that we are going to live with the consequences mm -hmm. of Obama's failure for the rest of our lives. The, uh, uh, why, why did he why, do it? Why did he do it? And this is the essential question of his presidency. He was opposed. He was well, yeah, of course he, was, he had lots of opposition, but he also had the power. He could have done whatever he wanted. But this is the central question of his administration, and we'll never know the answer until he writes his memoirs, and we probably won't know the answer even then. And so we, we basically have to, we basically have to, have to come up with our own, our own, uh, uh, you know, theories for it, and. You know, you can look at it in a lot of ways. He was inexperienced. He'd only been in the U.S. Senate for two years. He got bad advice from people like Larry Summers and Tim Geithner. Um, or you can say, you know, and that's that's one way of looking at it. But that just pushes the question back a little bit. Like, so who are Larry Summers and Tim Geithner? Because they they represent the party too. Um, the larger question, I think, is something that I've been hinting at all night, and I've I've stated it several times, which is that the Democratic Party understands itself not as a labor party, but as a party of the professional class. Mm -hmm. And by professional class, I mean people who work on Wall Street. They are the cream of the professional class. They went to good schools. A lot of them have advanced degrees. They're very prosperous. They have good taste. Uh, and they, the people who worked in the Obama administration knew them, were, were friends with them. And in many cases, the Obama people had worked in investment banking themselves mm -hmm. for several years. Um, in fact, you go back over their biographies, and almost all of them did for a short time. 
And so when the Obama people look at Wall Street, they were inclined to be generous. Uh, they looked at them as peers, as classmates. And they don't want to punish these guys. There's a famous, there's all sorts of famous quotes like this. There's a, one of the guys in the Justice Department said, you know, so they, so they did one thing wrong. You know, so we're going to go and, you know, I forget the rest of it, but it's like, so we're going to go and like punish them. They just did one thing wrong. Meanwhile, you know, they, if you lied on a mortgage application during that period, you're in jail now. The FBI came after you and you're in jail now. But if you packaged up a bunch of mortgages that you knew were false and sold them to retirees in Dusseldorf and they're all, you know, and they all lost their savings forever. No, you're fine. That's cool because you are part of the creative class. We use that term in America to describe the, uh, uh, the professional class. And they, the Obama's team, so his administra administration starts out, he was lavishly funded by Wall Street in 08. If you look at who his big funders were, that's who it was. Um, and he did these incredible favors for them. By the end of his administration, he had shifted his um, uh, attention, his devotions to a different industry. This was Silicon Valley. And his administration, by the end, was filled with these people from Google. And, uh, uh, you know, and this is the, the Democrats be became, uh, Eric Schmidt was basically advising Hillary Clinton's campaign. They are, you know, they are always an appendage of, of either Wall Street or Silicon Valley, and then in between a little big pharma action, you know. But it's always this class of people, highly educated, people with advanced degrees, white collar, working in the creative knowledge industries. That's who they see themselves as representing. The rest of us are just along for the ride. So what you're saying is they're not progressive. In the same time, when do you see this need to... You're on Solidarity Breakfast and we're at an event put together by Chifley Research Centre and Per Capita and it was uh, focusing on some uh, home truths by Thomas Frank who is a journalist and uh, author. Uh, we'll, we'll do the last uh, piece of the question time. The other voices besides uh, Thomas Frank are Wayne Swan and Dennis Glover. The word inequality is, I, I really dislike the word, and I remember it, when it, it, it came into vogue in about 2011, but, you know, look, people like me have been writing about it for years, people like Wayne Swan have been talking about it for years, and, you know, we never thought, I never thought to call it that. In the 19th century, they called it the social question. How, how are we going to live together? You know, it's the biggest question of them all, and to call it inequality, I think, minimizes it. I have a lot of hope in the young people, but you know, Bernie Sanders was enormously popular among the young. And you also find young people, remember how I mentioned all the student, student loan debt? This is now, everyone has this now. Uh, almost everyone who, who has gone to college in the last uh, decade or so, and they can't get out of it, and they are discovering very quickly that their generation is never going to have any of the opportunities that my generation had. or the, When my dad went to college, it was free in the 40s, the GI Bill. And, uh, and now these kids are like in debt for decades. They are furious and they are being radicalized before our eyes. And it's, a, it's kind of a, I mean, it's an awful thing that's happened to them, but it's a kind of a wonderful thing, uh, you know. I first started writing about inequality in 2004. Um, and I've just noticed, you know, as a politician has been out and about just talking to people that, you know, the intergenerational uh, war that's been going on uh, in, in Australia uh, is now being noticed by, you know, people who are not baby boomers. So, 
And I think one of the reasons that the parliamentary party has been able to move so substantially on things like negative gearing and so on is a, a much greater awareness across the whole of the community, but particularly resentment amongst younger people, uh, that they may not have the opportunity to get uh, entry into the housing market uh, or to come out of a tertiary education without a crippling degree of debt. So I'm a bit more optimistic that this word inequality uh, is more widely understood, uh, is actually discussed using that word, but lots of other words around it, uh, perhaps more than many in, uh, in the parliament actually truly understand. So I'm, I'm much more optimistic that when uh, Bill Shorten, as he is doing, is talking more about inequality and uh, the fact that um, you know, even parents who are well off are now worried that their kids will not get the same opportunities they had. Uh, and even if they've got five <coughs> negatively year properties, many of them understand that it's had a consequence for younger people in the housing market. And this being repeated across three or four other areas, not to mention climate change, the ultimate intergenerational issue, uh, I think is more widely understood and uh, is providing a much more fertile environment uh, for us to begin a discussion about um, what we do about it. Uh, but it's got a long way to go because it takes big organisational capacity to take on the power of big money, which is driving uh, the, the policies which are in, uh, resulting in such a huge concentration of wealth. If I say this phrase, the rich are getting richer, the middle's getting hollowed out, and there's great armies of working poor being created in Australia, everybody understands that but you've got to bookend it uh, with a couple of simple words. And getting the words right is a very, very important part of this. But more importantly than getting the words right, uh, and, and I've talked a lot about this with Australians over the last year or so, what do we do to inspire more people to get involved in our party and in wider social movements that have an economic focus? We've seen you know, fantastic participation in uh, you know, marriage equality um, and, a, and a variety of other movements where people have come out, they've used their social media, they've got really active, they've been out in the streets. Our challenge is to get them out there on this economic question, the fundamental one that tears away at the social fabric uh, in which all of the others have a place. But this one, I mean, you know, the, the civil rights movement in the United States uh, had a slogan and it wasn't about racial equality. You know what their slogan was? Jobs and freedom. Now, we as a Labor Party, because we're passionate about equality, are always talking about uh, economic equality, social equality, gender equality, racial equality, all these sorts of things. And one of our problems, I've found as a party, is that the more we talk about the social aspects of, of inequality, it's not, it drowns out our message on the economic aspects. Because if you're a, a truck driver and you're, on a, you know, you're, you're working seven days a week and you're being underpaid and ripped off and all this sort of stuff, and if all you ever hear from the Labor Party is something about uh, social equality in its various forms, justified and, and really important, mm. then you think, oh, gee, they, they probably don't care about us. And, and this takes us back to a theme that Thomas has got in his book, which is, and it comes back to Dennis's mm. point about language, sometimes... We just seem like we're too professional, too removed, and we're not there with words and, 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 and discussion with empathetic with the economic pressure that people feel. 
and, 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 and if they pick up the paper in the morning and there's a debate raging for a year uh, on marriage equality, but at the same time, insecure work's getting worse, these people think that you know, we don't really have our priorities right. So we've got a big challenge to say that equality is equality, whether it's economic, social, racial, gender, but to make sure people continue to hear the message uh, about how living standards are the focus of our Labor Party and, and, and of the wider Labor <coughs> movement, whether it's a trade union movement or not. And until we do that, we're not going to get the people participating on what I regard as the really hard-edged living standards, economic issues. That, that conclusion, and that's actually the conclusion that the Conservatives want us to come to that we're not going to fight them on these key distributional questions. Now, I, my overlay on that is we're, we're, we're for, for sustainable growth. We're not for growth at any price. We're not for growth which actually pollutes the world and actually becomes counterproductive or any of those things. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in politics and public life because I believe that, that, that human beings can, can improve their lives and be altruistic and, and, and everybody shares in it. Um, but if you take that sort of view about the world, then no one will participate. But I, one of the things that I know that the right really wants the, the left to do is to, is, to, is to think that there's no possibility to make a difference, no possibility for human improvement. And that's the sort of envi environment in which right-wing fascism uh, uh, prospers. I mean, technological improvement is a great driver of, of living standards. The problem is we're not sharing it fairly. That is that's really the true. problem. Yep. One, of the, one of the things that we've seen in America is productivity come loose from wage growth. That's right. Yeah. And this is, a, I mean, according to some, some economists think this is, the, this is the essence of what has happened to us, that the gains from technological advance are all sort of, uh, uh, you know, consumed well, by one class. Walmart and Silicon Valley. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and that working class people simply don't, uh, you know, uh, don't participate in this anymore. And the, the problem is then they, they try to understand why that is and nobody can figure it out. And the answer is actually incredibly simple because working people have no bargaining power anymore. Once in, in the United States where the, it's next to impossible to form a union uh, and there's, you know, workers have, have zero uh, say in, in the conditions of their employment, they don't, you know, they can't do anything about it. And so, yeah, their, their share of uh, productivity growth goes down and down and down. Growth is a combination of population growth and, uh, and technological advance, and those things are probably going to continue for quite a while, I think. I don't know when, when they'll end, but that's my feeling. The, the problem is, of course, that we leave so many places behind, don't we? You know, in Australia it's probably different from the States, but our wealth is, our, our, our inequality, to use that term, is in some ways much more highly um, uh, concentrated in places that we don't see anymore. You know, the old industrial centres, you know, Dandenong, or you think of Geelong, Cario, or Broadmeadows, or Elizabeth in South Australia. Some of these places have unemployment in the 30s now. Really? In the 30%. And these, these were the old industrial working class towns, a place where I grew up, where people um, had really, the working class had really great living standards. And now um, these places have had 25 years of mass unemployment, you know, 20 percent plus unemployment and you know where I grew up just two weeks ago tonight there was a young working class guy who got stabbed outside stabbed to death outside the uh, outside the milk bar where my mum used to work and the person who did it who was arrested the next day was in a house where one of my friends used to live around the corner and all oh our God. dads had jobs in factories and our mums had jobs in factories and shops 
and it was the working class were had a really high material standard of living. It's all gone now, and you know. It's concentrated, and we, we, we've, we've forgotten that, and that's one of the difficulties we have with talking about inequality, is that um, it's not generalised. You know, we have a... Australia's doing pretty well, but there are groups of people, there are places that aren't doing well, and we have to find... We have to get our politicians to lift those places and up we, as a matter of altruism. And we have a very good opportunity at the moment, because some of the solutions here are in the tax side of a much more progressive tax system or different changes in industrial relations. But the one thing that's bringing this message home uh, to people is, is, is the wage suppression that's going on uh, and the fact that you know, people have, have just basically had their living standards suppressed. So in the private sector, wa wa wages have gone up 1% in five years. So th there's a conjunction of things happening in the wage system and now happening in the tax system, uh, happening in the industrial relations system, which is made a much more fertile environment for this discussion. And, I, and in fact, I would argue that the, the result that we saw in Longman um, you know, on, on the weekend uh, was precisely a, a reflection of, of all of these trends. Median income in Longman and Braddon is $43,000 a year. Uh, that's $10,000 a year below the overall national average. Uh, these places, uh, you know, don't have people who've got lots of excess franking credits. Uh, we got a fantastic, we got a fantastic vote amongst oldies uh, up up in Longman, where the whole Liberal campaign was on about how they were being dotted on franking credits. It'd be lucky to be a hundred people in Longman that got excess franking credits. Um, but but so we got a very good opportunity for us to. Uh, talk about these issues in a way which is relating immediately to what people uh, are seeing happening uh, in their lives. It's a, and it's a wonderful opportunity for the, the Labor movement more broadly and for progressive people in politics uh, to be more broadly engaging with people at an individual level about these issues. You know who um, uh, William F. Buckley was? He was this uh, American conservative TV host, and he once said he would rather choose, he would rather be ruled yeah, by three names chosen from the Boston phone book than yeah. the, all the political scientists at Harvard. Um, but the, what I was going to say when you started answering your question is, you know, when you started asking your, your question about, you know, people are sick of, of the politicians and just having them come up with new talking points is not a sufficient answer, and you're exactly right. When you look at American history and what you know, the, the, the great successful moments that we all look back to, they are all uh, enormous social movements. So populism, in addition to being a political party, at, the, at first it was a, a farmer's movement. It was called the Farmer's Alliance. And these were extremely poor people, uh, uh, deep in debt, uh, who, who were getting cheated by uh, uh, merchants and bankers of every description, railroads, all, you know, all the forces of capitalism. And they got together into this group. It was like joining a club, but the club would, in addition to sending you a magazine, would have these lecturers would come to your town and they would set up an organization. They called it a farmer cooperative. And they would actually start to fight back against these forces. And it caught on. And it swept the country and millions of people signed up for it. And they loved it. And then it, it, they went into politics as a second chapter, or as book two, if you want to call it that. Uh, and they succeeded. You know, they eventually got what they wanted. It took years and years and years. The second example is organized labor in the 1930s, when uh, Americans start you know, signing up for uh, the uh, industrial unions. 
And they too sweep the country. And here's the solution to my economic problems. Everybody's signing up for these things. And then they go into politics as a second step. And they give us the New Deal and the, you know, the, the American social welfare state, such as it is. And a third is the civil rights movement. But social movements like this and the anti-Vietnam War movement have incredible power. And that is the leveling force. That's what we have that the Koch brothers don't have. They have a phony movement. And you know who this is? The, Koch, the billionaires who fund yeah. the right wing in America. They, 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 you know, they make things up uh, in order to you know, make sure that people don't get too angry about the Great Recession. They make up a Tea Party movement to steer you, you, know, to steer you astray. Uh, but they don't have real social movements. That's only our side has that. It is in social movements, but I don't believe it's in in the method you're describing, just because the power imbalances that we face and the power of big money uh, and its, and its uh, control over um, so much uh, of uh, the media and the means of production and so on demand a level of uh, uh, discipline, force, organisation and mass, uh, and mass movement. Uh, to, to actually hold back uh, what they really want to do. And one of the reasons we've done so much better here, and you partly identified them, I mean, we've got actually still got one vote, one value. What has propelled the right forward so far in the United States has been the, the, the gerrymandering, the decisions in the High Court that have simply allowed um, big money to do anything it likes any time. So I've got a bit of the old Marxist-Leninist in me, and if we're going to win this battle, it's going to require a lot of, a lot of foot soldiers in a very big battle, otherwise we'll keep getting done uh, by the people who've got the money and the resources. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when the nab your money bank, not the slightest chance of that being a misnomer, the nab your money bank, big supremo Andrew Thor burn your money, conceded the bank had acted dishonourably, but in no way. There was no possibility ripping off customers big time, charging for doing absolutely nothing, sweeping their wealth off them by thinking up lots of fun, fun, fun fees like the walking past the door fee, the walking in the door fee, the charging a fee fee was criminal. Look, I concede we may have acted dishonourably, but it is ludicrous to suggest ripping off big time, charging for doing nothing, is criminal, Andrew told us. Uh, excuse me just a moment. Yes, Richard. Uh, sir, we've discovered we have inadvertently paid interest on a customer's account. What? Despite our clear policy that we charge interest, but under no circumstances pay interest. Look, get this customer's details. This is outright theft. I, I want this matter referred to the police immediately for charges to be laid. But by charges, I don't mean what we do. I mean what they do. Uh, yes, sir. Now, sorry about that. As I was saying, there is no way our actions could be deemed to be criminal, and might I say, if by some remote chance they were considered criminal, there is no way any individual could be held responsible, uh, other than perhaps a couple of young tellers. Thank goodness Andrew has as consolation in this most distressing time for him his obscenely giant salary. But let's cheer him up. 
the week that was cheer us up department on this momentous week when True Blue Aussie celebrates 25 million of us many years before the experts predicted it. The good news is our sundry industry lobbies from road freight to airports to construction et al predict a doubling of business in record time and then double again in record time and then again and then again exponentially while governments ponder how to provide the energy for all this without interrupting the headlong rush to the end of the world. The miracle cure known as the negative, so-called because of the negative attitude of the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit party's usual fossils, for whom the guarantee that good clean coal will continue to destroy the planet for as long as the planet sputters on isn't good enough. The commitment to evil renewables providing 26% of energy by the end of the 22nd century is far, far too generous. Far, far too generous. Their spokesperson, former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, was all reason. That's 26% stolen from the great coal giants who generate, uh, generate pollution, Tiny. Let me finish. Generate jobs and growth and wealth for the whole community. That shows how selfish and anti-True Blue Aussie these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron, black armband fanatics are. Black armband fanatics are. And your coal lobby is anything but fanatical. Exactly. Not one bit. We are attempting to bring reason and balance to our energy policy. Reason and balance to our energy mix. So, so yes, Tony, you argue we need a range of sources in the energy mix. What would be a proper percentage for coal, for instance? Look, we want a proper balance. So 100% would not be unreasonable, not be unreasonable, and other unreliable when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow sources could fill the remainder. Remainder, that, that's that's 0%, is it? That sounds about right. Yeah, that sounds about right. But how will that address climate change and the extreme weather attacking the whole planet? Crap. Why waste time trying to address crap, trying to address crap? Oh, and big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull assures us we'll celebrate the end of the planet with cheaper energy prices. Go out with money in our pockets. That's the G-bit of negative, guarantee. And I'm sure we're all pretty sure what the guarantee will guarantee leading us to express our gratitude to Catherine Tunner Profits, supremo of fossil retailer Energy Profits True Blue Aussie, proud owner of the Yalorn Power Station, True Blue Aussie's number one contributor to the end of the planet, who has just announced record profits. A threefold increase on last year. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that exciting? The first of the energy retail giants to announce sky-high profits and... Our gratitude to Catherine. Catherine is so caring, so empathetic with the customers who kicked in to provide that threefold profit. Families and small businesses around the country have had a hard time keeping the lights on and their energy costs under control. She expressed her concern, which might have sounded a touch more sincere if she hadn't just announced a threefold multi-trillion profit from those having a hard time. But she won't have to worry about those struggling with their exorbitant pro her exorbitant prices once the G bit of negative kicks in. Malcolm guarantees we'll save heaps. 
like the massive savings we were promised when energy was wrenched from the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector and handed to the super-efficient, lean, mean hand of the private sector, to people like Catherine. And we all recall the windfall benefits we gained from that good-for-all-of-us process. And the bloated hand must have been especially inefficient because the super-efficient handed out handed out property by the then state big supremo Jeff Footinmouth, his economic guru Alan Stockdill et al, haven't stopped putting up the prices ever since, when all they wanted to do was save us money. So clearly, the problem goes back to the public sector. Yet there are cynics, ideological fanatics, who claim all the problems Malcolm, his fossils minister, Josh Fry, dem icebergs, tiny with his balanced views and the team, are tackling, are tackling emanate from privatising the public assets. Doesn't it show how irrational ideological fanaticism can be? Any wonder it upsets poor tiny. Speaking of foot in mouth and a time when we actually owned these assets, we all enjoyed our burst of nostalgia last week, celebrating the great nation building of the Downham family, despite poor Alexander having to suffer hate, hate, hate parvenus. Great nostalgic memories like his leaving us in stitches joke about that prime subject for great nation building humour, domestic violence, and his inspired decision to bug the Timor-Leste government. And the latter reminded me of another beautiful nostalgic moment, Alexander's predecessor as Minister for Going Overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, grovelling good heavens, laughing and raising his champagne flute with his Indonesia and other people's business counterpart, Arsi Arsitas, and former ACTU left-wing vice president, then Minister for Trading Occupied People's Resources, Peter Cook, the workers, and Pete's counterpart, celebrating their carb up of Timor Leste's resources on behalf of the world's oil cartels. And on nostalgia, remember our very bad regular joke back then at groveling good heavens, so principled, the jure recognition of Indonesia and other people's businesses, occupation of Timor Leste and its violent consequences. The jure in the crown is the oil in the ocean. The most important news in all the world, all over yesterday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, the pejorative Dan government wanting to remove the non-fax news from our loop train stations. Loopy news in the loop. Fix the trains, not the news, all over P1. And we can be sure Lord Rupert's self-interest as owner of non-facts and Sky Lies News had nothing to do with this being the biggest news scoop in the whole world, proving he's biased and selective in what it wants us to know, rival the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, no longer Falfax morning paper, didn't even mention the story, didn't mention the biggest story in the whole world, the pejorative Dan government interfering in freedom of speech as Lord Rupert's usual suspect columnist informed us as part of the sensational coverage. And all because Lord Rupert's pay TV news sources interviewed fascist Blair hate speech Cottrell and didn't think it worth challenging his fascism, which says heaps for the interviewer, the first Indigenous Supremo of the Northern Territory. He's got to get some sort of solidarity award. If Blair hate speech got his way, the interviewer would be one of the first to face the firing squad. Still, it's really, really surprising a fascist wasn't challenged on a Lord Rupert program. 
The long-haired commie greedy lots want great corporate Adani the Planet charged over a bit of pollution to the Barrier Reef during a cyclone last year. When it gets permission to discharge all this pollution onto the reef, the goody-goodies claiming the pollution was even more polluted than is permitted, which in itself is encouraging permitting pollution on the Barrier Reef. But Adani the Planet says it didn't pollute more than its normal pollute, a strong argument. And surely it's watertight pun only slightly intended, defence would be the not-so-bad pollution doesn't matter because thanks to our coal mine, the reef will disappear with the rest of the planet. Told you it was a cheer-up morning. We mentioned old favourites Alexander and Grobbling Good Evans and finally a current favourite of the week that was. I'm prepared to bet, listener, we all had the same thought as news broke of the disastrous earthquake in Lombok and told us our very own Constable Peter Duffer, Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire, etc., was on the spot at some conference or other working his guts out for all of us. And our current Minister for Going Overseas all the time, etc., Julie Bash up the workers, was in a plane on her way to Lombok to work her guts out for all of us. Now... Be honest, come clean, no need to be nice about it. I'll bet we all had the same thought. And therefore, what a relief when we heard our Pete was safe. We can but imagine the celebrations on Manus and Nauru and Christmas Island when they heard the good news. We were knocked, certainly, to the floor, Pete said in his usual articulate way presumably as opposed to being knocked uncertainly to the floor, although the latter is more likely. And let's hope he landed head first, thus avoiding any damage. Good morning. Hey, what are you doing for National Science Week this year, Stu? Well, one thing I was going to do was go to the Lost in Science Trivia at the Birmingham on Monday the 13th of August. What time is that on again? It starts at 7.30, but get there at 6.30 so you get a good night of trivia and fun. See our Facebook page for more information. The 2018 Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on the 11th of August at the Brunswick Town Hall. Stalls, books, projects and organisations fighting for a better world, here and abroad. Come for the stalls, stay for the workshops. Topics ranging from Indigenous struggles and decolonisation, climate change, anti-racism, unions, feminism, refugees, Anarchy 101 and so much more. Interested in a stall? Email us on info at amelbournebookfair.org That's info at amelbournebookfair.org Or message us on our Facebook page Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair 2018 A 3CR supporter You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and yes, the Anarchist Book Fair today and Lost in Science Trivia Night on Monday night uh, we're going to another event that was ha- that happened uh, this week. Uh, it was uh, the Greens. Um, Adam Bant called for a Melbourne says no to racism night. This is uh, part of what's been going on in relation to uh, Liberal Party beat ups about Sudanese gangs and uh, law and order. Using law and order as a a beating stick leading up to the election on the 24th of November. Uh, And, of course, there was a rowdy event in one of the 
outer suburbs that uh, caused huge amounts of police reaction. So we get we get a little bit of information about uh, what it's like for people who are being targeted uh, from the event and also uh, a little bit of news about what really happened in uh, Wheeler's Hill. Okay, so here we go. I'm sure that it's all seared in all of your memories that on January, uh, in January of this year, there was a group down in Torquay, there was a group of more than 100 youths who um, ran riot, quote unquote. They, um, uh, police who were there, um, who came out to meet them as they gathered in the street had bottles thrown at them. The police were forced to regroup. This is down in Torquay on the surf coast. They had to call in reinforcements um, from Geelong and from Melbourne. A number of people were charged with assault, riotous behaviour, being drunk and disorderly, and there was more than 100 of them. Um, does anyone remember that? Yeah. yeah. What you may not know, because the reporting died down pretty quickly afterwards and has not been referred to by one politician since, as far as I can find, um, is that, of course, they were white. Um, they were white youths, and it was put down as being, quote, antisocial behaviour, quote, unquote. They probably got a good talking to, um, and that was it, and it was left at that. And not one politician picked it up and tried to turn it into something to, uh, uh, to increase votes, um, to try and divide the community. And what we see is very, very much, um, very, very much, when it happens amongst a predominantly white community, it is ignored or explained in different ways. I'm Alan Sandler, I'm the State Member of Parliament for Melbourne, representing the Greens. And what I'm here to do is to actually share a message from a young Somali woman who didn't feel comfortable being here tonight, but she's asked us to read out this message on her behalf. As a teenager, I remember the Tampa affair playing out on TV screens across the country and thinking to my young self, there's something wrong with the government that's using the lives of innocent asylum seekers and children to win political votes. Even in that naive stage of life, I was incredibly sceptical of how race, migration, asylum seekers and refugees are discussed in Australia. I guess a once asylum seeker should know how this plays out. I came to Australia with my mother in the early 90s and I lived what I would say is the typical life of many refugees in Melbourne. I'm assuming it was the typical life as we tended to share our experiences and my story was the norm. Like the bulk of my refugee friends, I grew up in government housing and my primary school years were filled with racism and taunts about my colour and my hijab. As a Somali Muslim woman, I often joke that I have a triple debt weighing me down. As aspects of me are marginalised from my black skin to my headscarf to my gender. For the most part, though, it wasn't all doom and gloom. Looking back, I'm certain my experiences helped shape me to be the person I am today. Through the opportunities afforded to me in Australia, I went on to finish my schooling, graduated with a master's degree, and have been lucky enough to hold fulfilling jobs that give me a comfortable life here. That said, though, the 30-something-year-old me is now watching my TV screen, feeling like it's on rerun from the early 2000s. Again, we have a struggling federal government playing politics with my life. Again, I am having to witness an irresponsible Prime Minister use my life to save himself politically. And to be honest, I fluctuate between the emotions of frustration, anger, defeat, and hope that we'll get past this again. You're all probably wondering why I've chosen not to read out this statement myself. 
It's not because I'm afraid of public speaking or that I lack confidence. It's because I don't have any faith or trust in the Australian media. I don't trust that I won't be another Yasmin Abdel Magid and hounded out of Australia. I don't trust that the racist trolls won't come after me like they did Osman Faruqi. I don't trust that I won't have the likes of Andrew Bolt dedicate a column to abusing me. I'd rather swim in the sea of the hundreds of thousands of Africans, Muslims, refugees who face the collective wave of racism and hope and pray I won't be physically attacked or even killed like Leah Goni, who's the boy that Adam mentioned. I bring up Leah to remind us all the irresponsible racist rhetoric of politicians, the likes of which we have seen from Malcolm Turnbull, Minister Dutton, and the Victorian Liberal Opposition leader Matthew Guy have real life consequences for people like me. They also have serious consequences for all Australians in that they wreak havoc on the harmony we see in our communities. Recently, my nine-year-old son was watching another African gang beat-up story on the news. I'm haunted by his words. Huyo, mum, in Somali. Why do they always talk badly about Africans on the news? More than anything, I'm incredibly saddened to know that my son's experience living as a child in Australia is not that much different to the experience I had as a child. To think that his sense of belonging, or lack of, is no different to mine, even though Australia is all he knows, is heartbreaking to say the least. This experience has made me think long and hard about what would need to happen for us to be considered as a people who have a right to call Australia home. On the one hand, when I get in trouble with authorities, I'm reminded persistently my crime is immediately worse than a white person because of the colour of my skin. On the other hand, when I am a law-abiding citizen who is educated, works and pays for taxes, I'm told I'm taking the jobs of Australians. Essentially, I'm damned either way, it would seem. And for that, I lay the blame solely at the feet of our political leadership, and in particular the federal coalition government and the opposition here in Victoria, who've been stoking the seeds of racism for political advantage. To them and all the minor parties taking advantage of the vulnerability, I say, rest assured, you won't succeed. Know that we are a people who come from a people that have endured far greater hardships than this, and we survived them, and we will survive your racism, and Australia will survive your racism. In response to Peter Dutton and Matthew Guy ringing the bell, the state government is starting to dance to their tune and has introduced or has announced that they're going to introduce legislation that has been um, floated elsewhere around the country and roundly condemned, but now it looks like it's going to be Victoria's turn. And to give you a bit of insight into exactly what is in store for us and what is being proposed is David DeWitt, who's the senior lawyer at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's a privilege to um, appear alongside some of the amazing speakers that we've already heard of. Um, They've spoken passionately, and unfortunately, my job tonight is to talk about a very dry topic, which is the law, um, not everyone's favourite topic. Um, but it's a topic worth speaking about in the context of racism um, and how it's poisoned our politics. Um, I am someone that's on the ground uh, at court every day with a, a team of people that represent Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander persons charged with crimes. Um, and we have observed over the last uh, year a number of pieces of law pass 
that have been knee-jerk reactions and um, effectively um, opportunities to score political points through fear. Um, and I, I come to speak to you today about a piece of legislation that is soon to be passed, um, as Adam said, um, an anti-association law. Um, it's in fact a law that changes existing legislation, uh, an offence called unlawful association, which was originally designed to target bikey gangs, so sophisticated criminal enterprises. Um, it is now being amended effectively um, in a racially motivated way to target what could be uh, children, um, and it's one that's caused great concern to all of us operating in this sector, and, and I think um, it's going to be beneficial to be able to have intelligent discussions about it with people, um, so I hope to arm you with that knowledge. Uh, first of all, the original law was only, uh, so it was effectively a police officer is able to give a notice to a person that bans them from associating with someone that has been convicted of a criminal offence. Um, the idea, as I said originally, being um, if there's someone associating with a bikey, the idea is that you give them this notice and they stop and it disrupts a, a sophisticated criminal enterprise. The law changes will allow such notices to be given to people as young as 14 um, who have no criminal histories. Uh, it will prevent them from communicating with other 14-year-olds. Um, and if they are to communicate with, um, say, a friend um, through uh, physical contact or through social media, so a comment on Facebook, uh, three times in three months, or uh, six times in 12 months, then police can charge that person who's never been convicted of any kind of criminal offence um, with a completely fresh charge of unlawful association. Uh, what it effectively does is exposes children who have no contact with the criminal justice system to the risk that they um, will in fact engage with that system because of the people that they spend time with. Um, it's really concerning law um, and some of the safeguards that have um, made sure that police don't abuse those laws or um, they're not attributed to political gain have been removed as part of this legislation. Um, and I don't think that enough discussion has been had about that. So, um, as we've indicated, kids are being exposed to a maximum of three-year uh, jail term for such an offence. Um, that can be electronic communication, um, it is completely counterproductive with what Labor says is their objective to reduce uh, incarceration and, and engagement of youth with the criminal justice system um, because as we all know any kind of engagement with the justice system will uh, increase the likelihood of later engagement by a person. In Victoria, if you are convicted of a criminal offence, that stays on your record. It doesn't expire after 10 years or five years. Um, so children as young as 14, if convicted of this offence, will have criminal records for the rest of their life. There was an exception under old law that meant that these notices couldn't ban you from associating with family. Uh, obviously, family is a term that means different things to different communities. It's um, uh, completely different to a Western idea of a nuclear family. And previously, a relationship 
um, considered by that person and their community um, to be family. So perhaps a cousin, um, a family friend that you may associate with day to day would be an exception to these laws. Um, that has been removed. Uh, so a family friend that you grew up with um, could be someone that you're banned from associating with. And, and if you associate with that person, well, you're charged with a criminal offence. Um, it's troubling, and the fact that they've deliberately removed it proves that this is racial, uh, racially motivated law. Um, exceptions have been introduced for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, so traditional social practice. Um, but the fact that that doesn't extend to other groups, um, as I said, proves that proposition that it's targeted in a racially motivated way. Um, people you see at church, people you see um, doing sport. In fact, similar law was passed in New South Wales and the first person that was convicted uh, of such an offence was a homeless person um, who was suffering a chronic and terminal pancreatic cancer who was found to be talking to two other homeless people on a park bench where homeless people um, frequent it in New South Wales. So a way of targeting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are homeless, uh, of other cultural groups, of homeless people uh, in general. What I would say in a more general way is that uh, last year the crime rate fell by 6%. So from the perspective of a criminal lawyer, it, it's very difficult to understand why laws like this are being consistently passed uh, month to month by politicians. Knee-jerk reactions that are resulting in more and more incarceration. Um, they just funded 300 more beds at uh, the new prison. Aboriginal people are the most incarcerated people in the world. That's an accepted fact. That's um, something that as a community I think that we all need to take um, a responsibility for and, and I think the people in this room accept that. Um, so the next time that you're engaged on a law and order discussion with someone that might perhaps not know that, um, I ask that you raise the fact that crime and youth crime has reduced. There is no uh, basis for law and order other than, um, as Adam's already indicated, fear-mongering. Deng Malik Deng, who's um, who, the peer advocacy coordinator with the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre. He's been out in um, Wheelers Hill, I think even today, and is here to give us an update about, to, to take you a bit behind the scenes about something that you may be reading about in the papers and in the Herald Sun over the next couple of days, but to talk a bit about what is actually happening. Your markup day is where marked by these celebrations and some kids might have get some ideas at that time that you would want to go out, egg some other neighbourhood houses. Who hasn't done that here? By show of hands. Exactly. And um, so coming to that point, so young people got, up, got together after school and messages were intercepted by the police and got there quickly, diffused the situation. And what happened there, we don't quite know yet. But getting there this afternoon, I mean this morning, uh, managed to speak to one of the, uh, the managers at KFC in which the incident took place yesterday that was, that was reported on the news. So having that conversation with the manager, the manager was actually uh, um, 
he's shocked about how things were, what is in the And he said, a group of young 20 people, group of 20 young children came in here last night and sat over there. The only bad behavior I saw was one of them knocking the chair down, but they sat down and kicking it. So, and, norm and behaving normally until about eight, I mean eight right police officers, fully armed, walk into the KFC and force the children out of KFC while they were just normally engaging, not doing anything, not causing any problems, not fighting. And uh, that manager has a CCTV which he will send me to. I will not acknowledge that. That's not a complete uh, picture, but it's a really important one. piece of information that was missing on the media today. Yes, and that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this uh, morning of uh, sobering, sobering news. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with a rowdy number. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.